Thank you. It is my complete honor and joy to be here with you. So um, for those of you who know uh, me and know my family, I'm just going to give you a really quick snapshot of where we are right now. Um, we have three of our kids getting married this year. We have five. So one got married last year. He actually uh, got married and had a baby the same week. So that was a little, uh, that was interesting. Very fun dynamic. Um, and uh, so then our other kids went a much more traditional path to getting a family. So we had my oldest daughter. She got married in February. And then this is Ashley and David. They just got married on Sunday. I know, isn't she so cute? And he is so handsome. They are gonna have beautiful children. Now their children are gonna be hellions, but they are gonna be beautiful. Both of these kids are middle kids and they were that child for both families. So um, it was amazing. Okay, and so, uh, and then we have our son, uh, Jackson, getting married in October. And then we have our youngest daughter, Brooke, who's 17, and we have decided that she's not allowed to date at all right now. Um, but we are going to take applications. I'm going to narrow it down to four young men in about five, six, seven, eight years, and we're going to do an arranged marriage. But it's going to be a modern version of an arranged marriage for sure. So we're going to accept applications. I'll narrow it down to four and then uh, present them to her. So it'll just be an amazing thing. This is Ashley and her daddy. You see, she danced around him at the father-daughter dance. Now, just because there are women in the room and because you like this sort of stuff, they were dancing to butterfly kisses, and after the first verse, everybody around the dance floor had a little box, and we told them to open it, and butterflies flew out. Oh. Okay, so uh, the men are like, what? You spent money on butterflies? Yes, we did. Uh, so that's that. I am, uh, I am generous with my children. So there you go. Um, and I think that's the last picture. Or do we have another one? Is that it? Is that all the pictures? I think that's all the pictures. Perfect. Um, so the title of my message this morning um, is Confessions of a Generosity Wimp. So I'm just going to go ahead and let the note takers in the room know uh, that that's the title because note takers get twisted up in a knot if you do not give them a title and some clear points, you know. So for those of you who are a note taker, I hope that you are happy with that. And I also know that um, generally in a couple, uh, and most of you, many of you are here and you've got some of your family with you, so you have usually the generosity giant and the generosity wimp, and they're very attracted in the early phases of life to come together, and then they get married and things get all complicated. So we're going to just lay down some ground rules for my session right now. I would like for you to pick a person that you're seated next to and repeat after me. This message is for me. I will not use it against you. Okay, now I would like for you to pick your second choice neighbor. They're not at all offended that you didn't pick them first, but I would like to do it one more time, okay? So just repeat after me. This message is for me, but you need it more. That's awesome. 
so my daughter Ashley, who got married on Sunday, um, she was our uh, second biological child, and we adopted our two boys from Africa. But even after we adopted our boys from Africa, she was still smack dab in the middle. So she was a middle child from the get-go. And I'll never forget the day she was born, the way she looked at me. Now, most mothers recall this moment with such tenderness and love, you know, like, I will love you forever, you know, that kind of thing. But I saw a gleam in her eye when she looked at me the first time. She started at my head and went to my feet. And I know exactly what she thought. I can take you. So she has been that child. We, we always knew that Ashley would grow up and either wind up in prison or the pulpit. Maybe you have that child, right? Well, I'm happy to report that on Sunday, she married a pastor. Praise the Lord. Yes, she did. So now she's going to be one wild pastor's wife. So this is going to be an interesting situation. But Ashley has always been that child. So when she was about three years old, she had so much energy that I decided, and she was really tiny, so I decided in my brain, where do tiny energetic people go? And I decided that they go to gymnastics. And so I enrolled her in gymnastics. And much to my surprise, she became extremely successful in gymnastics. And she did gymnastics from the time she was three. And by the time she got to 13 years of age, she was nationally ranked. And she had big gymnastics dreams. Only one night right before one of the largest tournaments that she was going to go to, a big regional meet, she was doing a move she'd done hundreds, maybe thousands of times on the uneven parallel bars. And her grip slipped and she slammed into the lower bar. And even after a year of physical therapy, she still could not support the weight of many of the moves that are required in high-level gymnastics with her shoulder. And the doctors told us she would no longer be able to do gymnastics. But Ashley has the heart of an athlete. And so she decided she was going to find a new sport. She was entering into high school at age 14. And uh, I, I had all kinds of suggestions for her because I always have a lot of suggestions. And so I suggested lots of different sports. But she came home one day and she said, Mom, I have found my sport. I'm going to be a pole. Now, when she said the word pole, my heart seized a tad. Um, <laughs> But I was greatly relieved when she said a pole vaulter. And uh, I didn't really understand pole vaulting. I know if you didn't get that, you are so good and holy, and that is amazing. <laughs> I love you for that. Um, you can ask your neighbor because they totally got it. <laughs> the one that needs this message. Okay, so. Ashley was going to be a pole vaulter. Now, in order to be a pole vaulter, this is the most bizarre sport. In order to be a pole vaulter, this is what you have to do. You have to show up at the track. You have to strap on spiked cleats. You have to listen to the voice of your coach. You grab a ridiculously long pole. You count your steps as you run down the track. And right when you get up a lot of speed, 
you decide to plant your pole, bending it back and intentionally allowing it to fling your body upside down, careening in the air toward a bar that has been set on purpose in your pathway. You twist your body over that pole while simultaneously throwing the pole that has catapulted you, you then fall to the mat and hopefully live to tell about it all, okay? That's pole vaulting. So Ashley decides, I can do this. She is the heart of an athlete and she wants to be a pole vaulter. So she's gonna go where pole vaulters go and she's gonna do what pole vaulters do. Her whole ninth grade year, she shows up at the track, she straps on her cleats, she listens to the voice of her coach, she grabs the ridiculously long pole, she runs, she plants the pole, she flings her body, and time and time and time again, she knocks down the bar and falls to the mat and her jumps don't count, and by the end of her ninth grade year, she's in last place. But she is the heart of an athlete, and she wants to be a pole vaulter, so she's going to go where pole vaulters go, and she's going to do what pole vaulters do. Her sophomore year, she does the exact same thing. She shows up at the end of the track, straps on her cleats, listens to the voice of her coach, grabs the pole, runs the track, flings her body over, knocks down the bar most of the time, which means the jump doesn't count, which means by the end of her sophomore year, she's still in last place. But she is the heart of an athlete. And she wants to be a pole vaulter. So she's going to go where pole vaulters go, and she's going to do what pole vaulters do. Now it's her junior year, and she has made it halfway through her junior year. Every now and then, making it over 8 feet and 8.6 feet. But that's the highest she could go. And by halfway through her junior year, she's still in last place. So I go to cheer her on at the very last meet that she could possibly qualify for regionals. This girl has worked year after year, showing up at practice, giving it her all, probably even giving more effort and energy than many of the other girls on her team who had already qualified for regionals and who were working hard but getting a medal to show for it, and Ashley wasn't. So it was her last qualifying meet. I show up and I watch Ashley go in the pattern that she had been establishing, that pattern of working hard and giving it her all. And I'm sitting there and in the bleachers, I have gone beyond begging God to help my child. I have now become a beseecher in the bleacher, right? I am beseeching God, making deals with him. I'm sure breaking so many of the rules in the Bible. I mean, I'm like, God, please, if you will do this, like, I will, I will not even try to get another book contract. I just won't. God, I'll do anything. Please, God, let this child make regionals. And here's Ashley. She shows up at the end of the track. She listens to the voice of her coach. She straps on those spiked cleats. She grabs that ridiculously long pole. She runs down the track. And all those hours of practice, all that commitment, wanting to be a pole vaulter, going where pole vaulters go and doing what pole vaulters do, finally, it clicked. And I watched this girl plant that pole and fling her body, making it over eight feet 
8.6 feet, 9 feet, 9.6 feet. Now her coach is yelling at the top of his lungs, Ashley, you've qualified for regionals. No need to go any further. Yeah, there was no need because she'd never even made it over 9 feet or 9.6 feet. She certainly hadn't practiced 10 feet, right? And at that point, no girl in her school had ever made it over 10 feet. So then I watch Ashley go to the end of the line, defy her coach, and tell them to set the bar at 10 feet. She had that gleam in her eye. I can take you. That's what she's thinking. Now as her mother, I have gone beyond being a beseecher in the bleacher because I have wet myself. I am now a wet beseecher in the bleacher. As I watched this girl signal for them to set it at 10 feet, she listens to the voice of her coach. She has on her strapped cleat. She grabs that ridiculously long pole. She runs down the track. She plants her pole. She flings her body up and over 10 feet, breaking the school record. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm all in the bleacher like, she needs a plaque. She needs a plaque. And furthermore, so do I. Because <laughs> do you all know what I had to do to, to help, help this child get where she is, you know? Because I'm humble that way. It's amazing. And, but it was such a picture for me of what a journey life is. And sometimes the biggest act of honoring God is making the decision to continue to show up. I am a generosity wimp because I did not grow up with this great desire to give and to help other people. I just didn't. It has been a journey of just showing up for me. So this is how my journey has gone. I believe that we're all on a continuum somewhere with our relationship with the Lord. And the very first place in this continuum of where we are with the Lord, where I started, was this realization, I need you, God. Now, this was a hard realization for me to come to because I was raised with a father who was an atheist and with a mother who did the very, very best she could. But when my dad left, my mom was a single mom. He left us physically, but he left us financially too. He completely abandoned us. So my mom was a single mom working one job and then two jobs and then three jobs. So I was left at home to help figure things out for me and my sister. I was the one who had to figure out which bills to hold and which bills to pay. I was the one that figured out we could only afford boxed macaroni and cheese several weeks if we could afford anything at all. I was the one who had to make the choice to make sure that my sister was taken care of and fed as best as I could and get her to school. So at a very young age, I developed this skepticism about God. I knew that people said God was good. 
I just didn't believe that God was good to me. And so it took years and years and years of me trying to figure out how do you possibly trust this God. And really, my salvation journey came because I got to an incredibly desperate place. My mom had gotten remarried, and she had a few more children, and we were in a much better place, but I'll never forget one day at college, my mom called me, and she said my baby sister was very, very sick, and I needed to drive home through the night. I got to the hospital after driving eight hours from college and went and sat beside my little sister's bed in the hospital. And the doctors had told my parents that she would not survive without a liver transplant. So I started making deals with God. I told God, I will serve you and I will love you if you will spare my sister. Because I had a religion at that time. I knew how to follow the rules of God. But I did not know what it meant to have a relationship with God. And when you don't have a relationship, you're... Your interactions with God are much more like a transaction. I do what I'm required, then God, you need to do what you're required. And that's the way that I viewed my relationship with God. And then I remember I prayed over my sister. I made this deal with God. I remember I kissed every part of her face. And my parents said I had to go back to college, and so I did. And every morning I would call my mom and ask her how Haley was doing, and she would say, she's getting better and better, stronger every day. She made it through the transplant surgery. It seemed as if God and I were on a good path. I was following the rules. I was doing what I told him and I would do, and he was doing what I asked of him to do. And so our deal was working until one day when everything fell apart. I called my mom like I did every single morning, and I said, Mom, how is Haley doing? And she just sighed. There was no words. So I asked her again, Mom, how is Haley doing? And again, nothing. By the third time, I was screaming into the phone, Mom, how is Haley doing? And my mom simply said, Lisa, Haley is finally all better, sweetheart. She went to be with Jesus. And in that moment... I shook my fist at God. How could you? How could you have let my baby sister die? I shook my fist at God and decided I didn't need him and didn't want him. I turned my back on God and I headed straight into the world, determined that I would find love, I would find happiness, I would find significance, but I didn't need God for all of that. And I did find in the world temporary moments of happiness, temporary moments of significance, temporary moments of love. But I also found out that I was pregnant, alone and terrified, completely abandoned. So I did the only thing I knew to do, and I ran to an abortion clinic and asked if they could please help me. They said they could take care of this problem quick and easy, and I would never think about it again. And I made the horrific choice to have an abortion. And I'll never forget, after that being in my little apartment, crying out to this God that I really didn't even think existed, and I said, if you are real, God, have mercy on me and let me die. 
because the pain is so raw, so deep, I cannot even fathom living. But God was so merciful, though I had been so rebellious. He had this friend send me this note. Now, this friend that her note was laying on my counter on that day, I knew who it was from the minute I opened up the envelope's back flap and pulled it out because she was always giving me a Bible verse, and I was so annoyed by her. I was like, whatever, you know? She had a Bible verse for everything. If I had a headache, she had a Bible verse for that. <laughs> if I broke up with a boyfriend, she had a whole list of verses for that. And I was so skeptical. I thought, how does one person have access to so many Bible verses? This is ridiculous, you know? But the verse that she wrote on there was Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And I didn't understand all the theological implications of that verse, but what I did know is that as I read that verse, it seemed as if God was speaking to my heart, saying just this, I love you. I love you, Lisa. You and all your mess. I love you right there. I didn't know how to accept Jesus into my heart, and I wasn't going to call my Bible friend who wrote the note because then she would have ammunition forever if this thing didn't work, you know? And so I did the only thing I knew to do. I just lifted up my hand and I said yes. And that was my moment of salvation. That was phase one for me, learning that I need God. I need you. I cannot do life without you. I need you. So that's the first phase of most of our journeys with God. And then I entered into the second phase. And the second phase is I trust you. Now, I was a little skeptical. And it got complicated as I moved into my relationship uh, with my husband. I married a Christian man, and, and we're doing life together. And he naturally has the gift of generosity. And I remember thinking, that's the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. Like, we, okay, let me get this straight. We, we, we don't even, I mean, we not only have to show up to church, but we have to give them money. And he's like, yeah, 10%. I'm like, you have got, it's, it's like, do they have a contract? Is that what this is? And I'm like, before taxes or after taxes? I could, it was, it was beyond me. And it's because I was on a journey of learning how to trust. And it took such a long time. It was a process for me. But I'll never forget one Christmas when my husband uh, sat down, it was before Christmas, and he said, you know, I really think we need to do something to teach our kids how to really, really focus on Christ for Christmas. And I said, I know, I got this handled. Like, I set out a nativity scene. I, I did. I know. It was amazing, isn't it? And we will read the Christmas story. Yeah, we will, before they open Santa. I mean, I, I've got this, right? And he's like, well, I was thinking more along the lines of, like, Christmas morning breakfast. Why don't everyone give a gift from their heart to Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, I was thinking that too, actually. I just, I just hadn't said it yet, you know. And so that Christmas morning for breakfast, before we opened any gifts, we, we put a little box in the center of the table, 
And we said everyone was going to go around the room, uh, around the table, and we were all going to give a gift from our heart to Jesus. Now, I had put a lot of thought into my gift. I decided that year all of our kids were really little. I was so completely outnumbered. So this was going to be a really awesome gift. I said, I'm not going to yell at the kids for a whole year. That's what I had decided I was going to give as my gift to Jesus. I was so proud of it. I could not wait to announce it. I thought the heavenly angels are going to descend that's what they're going to do. And they're going to sing the hallelujah chorus because this is such a miracle that I'm giving this to Jesus, you know. But my husband went first and he just stood up and he's, he's just this amazing, gentle giant of a man. He stood up and he said, well, my gift from my heart to Jesus is that I've decided for the next year, 365 days, I'm going to intentionally look for one person throughout the day to give a little bit of my time or a little bit of my money or a little bit of my encouragement so that by next Christmas, I know that I will have touched 365 people in the name of Jesus. That's my gift to Jesus this year. Well, I'm sitting there at the table and I'm like, no, you didn't. And I'm supposed to follow that by, I'm not going to yell at my kids. I'm like, nobody wants to bring the stinky gift to any gathering, but I'm definitely not to Jesus for heaven's sakes, you know? And so I stood up and I went, no way, me too. <laughs> and I have no idea what my children were planning on giving Jesus, but they all caught on. They're like, me too, me too, me too. But it was this amazing year of really learning in this second phase of our connection with Jesus, of really learning how to trust Jesus. Because what I figured out that year is I don't have to figure out who to help. God is so good at being God. It's amazing. He really is every day. He would bring someone. I mean, we're a big, humongous family. We got seven people up in that house. You know what I mean? So, and every day, God brought someone for every single one of us to give either a little bit of our time or a little bit of our money or a little bit of our encouragement every single day. And our conversations around the dinner table, it used to be about like TV programs and politics and who hates who that day and like crazy stuff. All of a sudden, all the conversations changed. Who did Jesus bring in your life today? What did you do in the name of Jesus today? How did you change that person's world today? Trust. That whole season of learning, I, I need God. But, but now I've, I'm, I'm kind of transitioning this place where now I actually trust God. And then there's this third place that we enter on the continuum of our relationship with Jesus. And this is where, yes, we trust God. And yes, God is what we need. But we enter into this glorious place of God's not just everything I need, but now. He's everything I want. And I think God really wants us to get to that place. That he's not just everything we need, but God wants us to get to the place where he's really everything that we want. And I found this place when I got the most unlikely invitation to go 
to the Holy Land. And we traveled, and honestly, I was kind of frustrated that I got sucked into this situation of going to the Holy Land because I was like, I ain't got time to go to the Holy Land, and I can read books, and I can learn the stuff. Like, I read the Bible every day. I got the stuff, you know. And, and plus, I mean, you know, there's like people over there that want to shoot other people. It's like, why am I going to intentionally go put myself in that situation? It's a long way away. It's hot. It's sticky. You know, I just, I was not... My heart was not there. But one of the first days we went and we sat in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I was blown away, blown away at the invitation that God gave to me that day as I sat in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32, it says this. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father... He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. That's where I was when I sat in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd been walking with Jesus for a long time. We'd had a beautiful love affair. But my affections were stirred by other things as well. Oh, I needed him. And I had gotten to the place where I trusted him. But he was not everything I wanted. I'm much like many of you. I'm going to step out and I'm going to go big or I'm going to go home. I've always believed, God, you gave me this drive. I can figure stuff out. And I'll take risk. Oh, I might even wind up bankrupt, but it's okay because I'll bounce back because I am the comeback kid. You made me this way, God. I can make the money. I can lose the money because I'll make it again. I'll start a new thing. I got this, God. I got this. Like, Lord, see how well I've got this. I got it all right here. So, Lord, if you will just bless this, don't mess with it. Just bless this. And you can move on to all the crazy people in the world that I know you need to help. There are a few right there and right there. Lord, you know, bless them. Help them. But I got, so God, just, just bless this because I got it. And when I got there to the Garden of Gethsemane and I was reading these words, I realized Jesus really, really had it. Jesus was fully man, but he was fully God. When he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane, it sits at the base of the Mount of Olives, right on the Kidron Valley, just before you go up into the city. And the thing that's so astonishing about the exact location of this olive grove is that it sits right on the base where David escaped from Absalom. 
If you spell Gethsemane the way it is in the Bible, it means the pressing of the olive when it's spelled G-E-T. But if you use the Aramaic spelling G-E-D, Gethsemane, it means the route of escape, the route of ascension. Jesus was sitting there in this place where he had met the disciples so many times. He was about to be betrayed. He was about to be arrested. He knew all of that. But he was sitting in this place, in this known escape route. This was the escape route. If you were in the city and you got in trouble, you passed through the Garden of Gethsemane, up over the Mount of Olives to the Judean desert, and you were free from whoever is pursuing you. Jesus sat there at the doorway of the escape. And he did not want this cup to come his way. And then he whispers in this prayer, these earth-shattering, hell-shaking, demon-quaking, life-changing words, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, for me, I had trusted Jesus as my Savior. I needed him as my Savior. I learned to trust him with my life, including my wallet. But I had not surrendered my will, yet not what I will but you, what you will. That's the place where you know he's everything, not just that you need, but everything you want. And isn't Jesus so amazing? In John chapter 1, we find out that everything was made by him and through him. Jesus was there at creation. So I don't believe that Jesus taught lessons on the birds and thought, oh, look, there's a bird. No, he created that bird for that moment. So I have to know Jesus intentionally set this scene where he would experience his greatest moment of deep distress and sorrow. And Jesus chose to sit in the shade and the shadow of the olive tree. There's three things that we must know about this olive tree. And I think it will speak such comfort to those of you who are in that place of making sure Jesus isn't just everything you need, but everything you want as we surrender our will. Number one, the olive tree, in order for it to be fruitful, it must have the harsh winds of the east, the harsh winds of the desert, the same winds that blew over Job's house and caused such devastation. It must have the harsh winds of the east and the harsh winds of the west, the refreshing winds that come up from the Mediterranean. It takes the harsh winds and the refreshing winds in order for that tree to be fruitful. The olive tree will never produce fruit without good times and bad. And we are much the same, yet not my will, but your will. The second thing about the olive tree is that when it finally does produce fruit, if you go and pluck an olive straight from the olive tree, it is so hard and so bitter, it's never useful. There is a process to get rid of the olive's hardness and bitterness, and the same is true for us. It must be broken open. It must be soaked and saturated. It must be salted. I don't have to tell you all the parallels. You know it, right? There is a process for us to get rid of our hardness and our bitterness. 
And the third thing about the olive tree is that when the olive is finally most useful, the thing to get what's most valuable from that olive, the olive has to be pressed and crushed to the point where it no longer is recognizable as an olive because what is most valuable inside that olive is oil. It's the very thing that allows the ordinary olive to become extraordinary light. And the same is true for us. We will go through pressing times. We will go through those times that, that take the life that we've known and flips it upside down and we don't even know what's happened to us. But it isn't for the point of destruction. It's for the point of transformation. God wants us to be light to this world. Yet not as I will when the harsh winds blow, not as I will, God, but your will. When I have times of hardness and bitterness, Lord, break me open, soak me in your word, salt me with your truth, not as I will, but as you will. And in those times where life isn't just hard, Lord, but it is crushing beyond what I feel like I can bear, Lord, not as I will, but as you will, because it's the only way for me to, Go from being just an ordinary olive to becoming light for this world. Jesus sat in the shade and the shadow of the olive tree because I believe he needed that message and I believe he wants us to receive that message straight from the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, you are what I need. Yes, Lord, you are what I trust. And now, Lord... You are everything I want. And I stood there in the Garden of Gethsemane and I let rare tears fall from my eyes because I was so desperate to be part of the soil of this place. Because one day, and I believe it'll be very soon, the Mount of Olives is the very spot that our Jesus will return. And when he plants his feet on this Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split in two. And eventually the city will rise and waters will flow to the east and the west. And it'll flow with such force that it'll rush into and wash out the Dead Sea. It'll teem with life. No, all, there will be no death in that moment, no tears in that moment. It'll be full life. And Jesus Christ will be the one whom every knee will bow to and every tongue confess. And on that day, I pray you and I are not able to just say, Jesus, you are everything that I needed, but that we will also say, you are what I trusted, and ultimately, Jesus, you were everything I wanted. To God be the glory.